amen. I'm going to start tonight in Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18. Uh, verse 21 has a, is a verse of scripture that, um, um, well, it's just super important. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. I grew up in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, outside of uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and all the time that I was in high school, our big thing, we lived for sports and uh, all that kind of stuff, and uh, one of my best friends in high school was um, the son of the football coach uh, for the, the high school coach, and uh, he and his wife were very involved in the, the Baptist church that we all attended. And um, they were, well, she was. The mom was uh, recognized as uh, an excellent teacher. They were both uh, working at the school. She taught, uh, well, I don't remember what she taught. I never had her in school. But she was a, a teacher in the high school. And um, their house due to location and maybe other things as well, became the headquarters for what our group would do. Everything we'd do, we'd meet there. And uh, there was a, a, a little box that they kept on their, um, well, you can't, even, you can't call it a dining room. The only place they had in the house to eat was a real small house. And there was a, it was a circular table and there was a little box that was there. I'd never seen one before. didn't know anything about it. I was told it was called a promise box. And it had uh, scriptures cut up in little strips uh, on uh, cardboard or whatever they used, the paper stock. And um, so every day before their meal, they would open, or she would, uh, open the promise box and they'd read a scripture. And uh, I don't remember exactly what was going on, but we started off early, early, early one morning and we were going to go somewhere, and um, the family was, or part of the family at least, was having breakfast. And so when I got there, I had some other people with me that was part of our group. I don't want to call us a gang because we weren't gang-like, but, uh, but we were always together. So in that sense, it was a gang, I guess. So anyway, went into the, into the house to uh, pick up my friend. We were going to go wherever it was that we were headed, and uh, while we were there, the part of the family was sitting down to breakfast. And um, so as we walked in, before we could leave, we had to stay for the promise box reading. And uh, it wasn't much. They'd read two or three of these little cardboard things. And um, one of them was Proverbs eighteen twenty one, And she read it. It was the last one of the two or three that she picked that day. And uh, when I say picked, it was kind of like it was a rotating thing. When you finish one, you put it in the back of the box, and then so many days later, you run into it again, you know. And uh, anyway, she read, she said, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Um, things got busy. People started going different directions. But for some reason, I was glued to the floor. And I said, what does that mean? And she looked up at me and she smiled and she said, I don't rightly know. Well, what other answer is there? If you don't know, you don't know. So we wound up going about our, our activities. And I remember that, that one scripture. Um, I thought about it all day long. I thought about it all day long. Now, by the end of the day, I was involved with other things and it had slipped by and... and um, it was gone. Whatever uh, anointing, whatever work of the Holy Ghost was attached to it was long gone by then, by the end of the day. But looking back on that, I can't help but think the Holy Ghost was trying to get something to me. I can't help but think that of all the things, of all the scriptures that could have been in that promise box, that one was available for me to hear that day. I wish I'd done something with it. I don't really know what I would have done. I had uh, heard a lot about this thing called faith, but nobody ever taught on it. Nobody ever really referred to it in any way other than uh, a necessary ingredient to being saved. But once you're saved, what else do you need faith for? And, and I don't know that I was ever taught that, 
But that's kind of the idea, the impression you get. You know, you can tell a lot about people by what they do talk about, talking about churches. You can tell about uh, what churches are like to see what they preach on. And then you can tell a lot about them by seeing what they don't, don't preach on. And I thought to myself, many years later after I found out, and, and, and honestly, folks, that's the reason Brother Hagin had such an impact on me. He was the first person I ever heard that talked about the word like it was a useful tool. And some of the things that he talked about that faith would produce and that faith, the stories that he'd tell about what faith had produced, sometimes it was a weapon utilized against the enemy and whatever work he was bringing about or attempting to bring about in somebody's life. That was so foreign to me. Now, I got saved when I was young. I got saved just before my sixth birthday. And, um, and God's always talked to me. Did you see this thing that happened the other day on The View where one of those uh, precious ladies that, uh, that are on the show mocked and made fun of the vice president for talking about hearing from God? Well, anybody that's saved hears from God, which should be all the explanation you need for that event and the way that it happened. Everybody that's saved hears from God. Now, they may not know what to do with it. They may not even recognize it's him. But everybody that's saved hears from God. Jesus said, my sheep hear and know my voice. My sheep hear and know my voice. So if somebody doesn't hear from God, that tells you all you need to know. They're not his sheep. Well, when I got around Brother Hagin, many years later, and, and, uh, and it, it was many years after, it hadn't been too many years ago, that I remembered that thing about Proverbs 18.21. And, and looking back on it, it seems clear to me that the Holy Ghost was trying to get something to me. There was something, a spark of curiosity or something, that he tried to bring me to the place where I could know more about him and know about, more about the word. But folks, I want you to realize something. This is Old Testament. Not that old things have passed away, the Old Testament has passed away and it doesn't belong to us. It does belong to us. Thank God for that. But what I'm trying to point out is they knew this stuff in the Old Testament. They knew this stuff in Old Testament times. Look with me to uh, Psalm 34. We could give a ton of examples here, but let me just make one real quick and see if that makes the point. Psalm 34, this is a Psalm of David. Verse 12, it says, What man is he that desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Here's the answer. Long life and good days. Here's the answer. Keep your tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, verse 13 is what Peter quotes in the letter that he wrote to, church, to the church. And he quotes it word for word. Whoso would see good, uh, live long life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. The point that I'm trying to make is this was not a secret. The operation of the tongue, the importance of the tongue was not a secret. But it sure seemed to be a secret in most of the churches that I had experience with growing up. How did we not know that? I'm uh, intrigued by some of the things that Jesus said about his earthly ministry when he was here. You remember the story in Matthew chapter 8 where the centurion has a servant at home that's sick of the palsy. And he comes to Jesus or his representatives come to Jesus and everybody says, uh, that you really should help this guy. He's built a synagogue here in Capernaum. And so the Bible says, of Abraham, I bless those that bless you. So Jesus said, I'll come to your house. He said, you don't need to do that. Just speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Then he explains about his understanding of authority. The people under his authority, he tells them to do something and they do it. The people he's under authority, under the authority of, they tell him to do something and he does it. And Jesus made uh, a statement after the centurion said, speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Jesus made a statement that I think shows us a lot about what God looks for and what he cares about. 
Jesus marveled at his faith. He said, I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Doesn't that at least imply that he was looking for it in Israel or from Israel? It certainly seems so to me. It seems to me that Jesus is saying, this is what I expected to find or this is what I should have found among the covenant people of God. But he didn't. He didn't find that at all. Another thing that, uh, that's intriguing to me along this line is that Jesus talked about our job, the job of the church, being to occupy till he comes. But then he made this statement in relation to that. He said, when the Son of Man returns, shall he find faith on the earth? Shall he find faith on the earth? Well, death and life are in the power of the tongue. There were several places where God said through different people, Behold, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Well, if the power to choose death and life are in the power of the tongue, then he's got to be saying the way to choose life is through your words. Doesn't he? Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 12. I have uh, recently made contact with some of the people that I was friends with, some of the people that I knew back in Alabama. And um, it, was, it was kind of a, well, it was something I wasn't expecting. It was something I wasn't really trying to find out about people or anything like that. But I came across an obituary of uh, the high school coach, the dad of the, one of my best friends. And he died a couple of years ago. And so um, that information kind of hooked together with it, different people on so social media and Facebook and that kind of stuff. So I wound up making contact here recently with some of the people back there. And I have been absolutely flabbergasted to see the people that are talking about prayer and believing in God and Jesus and stuff like that totally blew me away. I mean, people that wouldn't have been caught dead in my memory, talking about God and talking about prayer in the way that they have. And, and um, uh, what well, looks obvious to me from some of the things that they're saying is that they really believe God, they trust God, at least as much as they know. And, and it's been a real blessing to me because, uh, I don't know, I just never really expected that out of some people. If you're not around people all the time, you don't see them changing. And um, I don't know. I don't guess I really expected anybody would change. So seeing some of the people that uh, are saying some of the things they are about God and about prayer and about them praying for other people that are in difficulty and so forth has been a real blessing. But nobody's quoting the word. They're talking about a love for God. Thank God for that. They indicate through their... Um, well, the, the things I've read anyway, that they genuinely love God. But nobody's got any ammunition for anything. Nobody's got anything that they are, uh, well, able to use in any effective means against the devil and against the things that are coming against others, others of their friends back there. And seeing that really stirred this thing up with me about the promise box in Proverbs 18, 21. Notice in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, then was brought unto Jesus one that was possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, is not, is not this the son of David? Son of David is a reference to the Messiah. So you got people that are seeing the results, are seeing the healings. Jesus setting people free from the work of the devil, casting out devils and healing the sick. And the people came to the understanding that God wanted them to, I'm sure, and recognized this has something to do with messianic territory. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself how shall then his kingdom stand? 
Now, folks, notice something about this. Jesus is saying that the devil would never, could never, ever, under any circumstances, do something that would be good or benefit people. He can't be making people sick and healing them too. He can't be robbing them of finances and bringing finances to them too. Jesus indicates to us. Now, now he could have said anything he wanted to. I mean, if, it, if this is not an accurate portrayal of the, the devil and so forth, then the devil, if he had the power to make people sick and make people well, which he doesn't, Jesus is saying he wouldn't do it anyway because it would bring his kingdom to naught. The devil's only means of operation, his only means of success is to keep you in the dark, to keep the church in the dark about what we can do. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Jesus goes on to say, and if I by Beelzebub, a name for the devil, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. Now, Jesus is talking about the children, meaning the next generation. The generation that came out of Egypt was not the one that went into the promised land. It was their children. And the reason for that is because Israel would not believe that they were able to take the promised land because God said he'd be on their side. But the next generation did. The next generation did. I want you to keep your eyes on what's going on in society right now. Because the pattern that God has established and his word will produce is that each additional generation will go further in God than the previous one. But look at how the devil's stirring up this stuff about the school shooting. Notice what's happening with the young people. They're looking for a cause. They think they found a good one. They don't know they're being pulled by the nose by their enemy. Keep your eyes on what happens with the youth of this this time. So Jesus says, your children will cast them out. An obvious reference to the power of God that will be available to the church after his death, burial, and resurrection. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of, of God has come unto you. Notice that he's talking about the kingdom of God ruling over the devil's kingdom. He's talking about the power of God. He's talking about the will of God breaking the work of the devil. Verse 29, he said, Or else how can one enter a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man? That's what Jesus does. That's not what you do in prayer. That's what Jesus did on the cross. How else can, else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man and then he'll spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me. Folks, I want you to notice there's no middle ground when it comes to God and the things of God. You're either in or you're out. There's no part in. That's called lukewarm, a lukewarm condition, and the Bible doesn't speak favorably of that. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scatters abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoso speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. The context of speaking a word of blasphemy or words of blasphemy against the Holy Ghost has to be in the same context that Jesus is that the Bible refers to us and shows us is taking place in this condition, this situation. They're saying that the power of God, they meaning the Pharisees, said that the power of God was really the power of the devil. Jesus said that will never be forgiven. Now he does not say that it will send somebody to hell. There's only one sin that sends somebody to hell, and that's rejecting Jesus. But Jesus is saying, people get all wound up about the unpardonable sin. You really have to find out what people are talking about when they use that phrase. Usually people think the unpardonable sin is the one that sends you to hell. But Jesus is talking about an unpardonable sin for those that don't go to hell.
The Bible says some men's sins go before them and some men's sins follow after. There's a, um, well, thankfully it's not as prevalent today as it was 30, 40 years ago, I guess. But there's a certain part of the church, church world, that speaks against the working of the Holy Ghost. If Jesus is telling us the truth, they'll have to answer for that when they get to heaven. They'll have to answer for that. It won't send them to hell. Jesus goes further and identifies that. He said, if you speak against me, that'll be forgiven. But if you speak against the Holy Ghost, you'll get to answer for that one. Then notice what he says. Notice the context of what he goes into. Verse 33, he said, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. Now he's talking about your words of your mouth. O generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. There are unpardonable sins that won't send you to hell. That just simply means you get to answer for those when you get there. This is one Jesus identifies as just that. Turn with me over to James chapter 3. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Beginning in verse 1 of James 3, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing we shall receive the greater condemnation. The word master there means teacher. He's saying don't try to take on responsibility that's not yours. There's a condemnation for that. Verse 2, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Notice what he's saying. Now, the word offend here literally means sin, to stumble into sin. He said there's opportunities for us to stumble into sin all over the place. But the important one is don't stumble into sin with your mouth. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor or the captain of the ship listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. He's saying that the greatest, largest, most destructive fire there is all starts with a spark. And your tongue can create that spark. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and set on fire the course of hell. Let me read this from another translation. It says, and the tongue is a fire. It is the power of evil placed in our bodies, making all the body unclean, putting the wheel of life on fire and getting its fire from hell. Verse 7, For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth at the same time sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Now, when he's talking about the tongue as a fire full of iniquity or a world of iniquity and set on fire, of course, of hell, he's talking about the unrenewed tongue. He's not saying that we can't tame the tongue. He's saying the unrenewed. We, we certainly know that would be the case with the unsaved. But when he's talking to my brethren, he's trying to get a point across to the church, to you and me. 
How do we tame the tongue? There's only one way, and that is put God's word in our mouth. Train ourselves to speak what God's word says. Now, why is that important? Because death and life are in the power of the tongue. Always has been. Always has been. You remember back in Numbers chapter 14, when the children of Israel come to the promised land, send the 12 spies into it to check things out, come back and give a glowing report of the, the wealth of the land. God said it was a land flowing with milk and honey, and they come back and say, that's exactly what it is. But 10 of the 12 spies, everybody except Caleb and Joshua, say, we can't do it. The people are too strong there. They've got cities with big walls around them. They've got stronger armies than we do, and we can't take it. Caleb and Joshua tried to steal the people and said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't freak out about this. God's on our side, just like he delivered us from the hand of Egypt. He'll deliver the promised land into our hands. But they wouldn't hear of it. The other 10 spies shouted them down. And then the congregation believed the majority report. And so they forfeited. Because of their unbelief, they forfeited what God wanted for them. God wanted them to take the promised land then. But they detoured God's plan, postponed God's plan for 40 years. They postponed God's plan for 40 years. I'm sure there's a lot of religious people that would look at them in the wilderness, the children of Israel in the wilderness for those 40 years and say, well, you never understand why God works the way he does. But the reality is it wasn't God that put them in the wilderness. It was them. They did it to themselves. And in chapter 14 of Numbers, I'm not sure which verse it is, somewhere around maybe verse 25, 6, something like that. God said, I will deal with them according to the words that they've spoken in my ears. He goes even further and um, identifies the principle that he's laying down as being an eternal principle. He said this, he said it in this way. He told Moses, tell the people it's the oracle of God. What that means is that it's an eternal law and a principle that will never change. Now, folks, it's not just a law and a principle that works here on the earth. It will never change. Better learn how to operate in faith here because you're going to need it in heaven. Well, what's the law and what's the principle that he set down? The eternal law, the oracle of God, is that I will deal with them, including you and me too, as we have spoken in his ears. In other words, they chose death through the words of their mouth. And God said it's always that way. You'll either choose life or death with your tongue, with your words. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You know, if that was the only place in the, in the Old Testament that we have that record, we might understand why it was overlooked. Even though God said to Moses, this is an eternal law. But you know as well as I do that the, the, the translators that translated that, the oracle of God, didn't have a clue what it meant. Or else they would have put it out there visibly for us to understand ourselves. And without some of the technology that we have and smartphones and ability to look up certain words and find things out, we never would know what oracle of God means. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think to look up that. But the people of Israel knew. David knew. David knew that the key to long life and seeing good days was to say the right things. Avoid saying the wrong things. Jesus found it in the centurion. But he didn't find it in he, even in his own disciples. He was looking for it. He noticed it when he found it, finally. But there were very few other places that he did find it. Very few. Turn with me, with me over to Romans chapter 5 now. Romans chapter 5. I guess the question that I need to nail down is this. If the church doesn't teach people the importance of words, what in the world is the church teaching? What is there that's more important than to know the importance of your words. What is there that's more important in the life of the believer 
than to know the power that's in your tongue. See, I look back at all the years that I spent growing up and, and in church and, and around people that love God. I, I'm not complaining about anybody. I'm sure they taught me everything they knew. Which means none of us knew anything. I certainly didn't learn it from them and they didn't know it themselves. But if that's not what the church teaches, what are we teaching? Or maybe a better way to ask is, why are we teaching anything if not that? You remember in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, the Bible says, God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air, basically all the work of his hands. God put man on the earth to have dominion. Well, how's he going to exercise that dominion? The same way God exercised dominion in the creation account. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1 it says, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. Why does it do that ten times? Why doesn't it just say, and God spoke the world into existence? Why does it tell us specifically what he said on what days and what occurred? Because he's trying to teach us, mankind, that authority is exercised through your words. If we are made in the image and likeness of God, then we should operate the way he does. People whose father is the devil certainly act like the devil does. The Bible tells us to be imitators of God. Well, in what way are we going to imitate God if not through our words? Through the exercise of authority through our words. Now, some people will say, well, that was just the Old Testament. Now things have changed and so forth. But notice Romans 5:17. For if, literally by sense, talking about Adam, for since by one man's offense, death reigned by one, spiritual death entered the world when Adam sinned. Much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life through one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. That's just another way of saying spiritual death ruled over mankind. Even so, by the righteousness of one Jesus, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, Many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, Jesus, shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. He doesn't mean that made, made people sin more. It means it showed that man did not have the capacity to not sin. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as, the, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice verse 17, verse 21 particularly, is talking about reigning in life. Reigning in life. Reigning in life. And they're both tied to righteousness and grace. There are four types of confession that the Bible identifies for us in the New Testament. One was the uh, uh, confession of sins in John the Baptist's ministry. Under that covenant at that point in time, knowing that Jesus was near and he was going to the cross soon, John the Baptist went out in the, in the uh, power of Elijah, the Bible says, Jesus said himself. He went out in the power of Elijah to get men, to draw men to repentance. That's what the baptism of John was all about. That's what, uh, uh, why John resisted when Jesus came to him because Jesus had no sins to confess. And the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. So Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John was just simply a sign to John and to the world that Jesus was consecrating himself to God's plan and purpose. Well, that's the first type of confession that the Bible talks about in the New Testament. It really was the ending of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. The second type of confession that the Bible refers to is the confession of the unbeliever to become a child of God. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10 talk about that if you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as Lord, you shall be saved. 
That confession, the second type of confession that's talked about in the New Testament, is the confession from death unto life, the confession of lordship, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Then the third type of confession is repentance from sins, confession of sin to repent for the believer when he steps outside of fellowship with God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, For if we are if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't mean state of being. Unrighteousness there means unrighteous action. And then the fourth type of confession that the Bible talks about is really the one that should be the most prevalent in our day or in any time in the church age, and that is the confession of who we are in Christ and what belongs to us. In other words, the fourth type of confession is the confession that enables you to reign in life. Through the abundance of grace, what Jesus has done for us, and the gift of righteousness. Those four types of confession are the only types of confession that the New Testament talks about at all. The only type. The only kind. Well, how much does the church world know about those? church I grew up in and didn't know anything about them. We thought that it was all about confession of sin. It's a funny thing. One of the people that I made contact with here lately, um, they said something about going to church or whatever, and I asked them what they learned in church. You probably can guess this. They studied the book of Job. I got to tell you, I remember hearing a lot about Job when I grew up in the Baptist church. I heard a lot about Job. And the point, as it was uh, explained to me, the point of the message was that Job never got angry with God. Now, I'm not sure what that matters one way or the other. But that was the topic that was tackled. Job is a real interesting book. I don't do any teaching on Job because I don't claim to know a lot about it. But one of the things that stands out to me about the book of Job is what we don't know. And everybody wants to talk about it like it's the pattern that, uh, of how things work. And nothing could be further from the truth. The book of Job basically comes down to several points. One was God blessed Job. The second thing is Satan stole from Job. The third thing is the religious people called Job's friends came and blamed him for the problem, which religion always does. The next thing that happened was that Job called God unrighteous. He called himself righteous and unrighteous, which brought about the next point, and that was God showed up, told Job he was an idiot. The next point is Job prayed for his friends. The final point is God gave him twice as much as he started with. That's the book of Job in a nutshell. Now, to go any further than that, I've never found any, any to be profitable in any way whatsoever. Because one thing we don't know is when did Job occur? Job is not identified in the lineage of Abraham, which would seem to be a major oversight if he was living after Abraham had met with God. So if he wasn't after Abraham, where was he? The reason that's important is because if we don't know when Job occurred, if we don't know when the nine to 12 months that the book of Job identifies took place, we don't know what covenant he's operating under. And if we don't know what covenant he's operating under, we don't know the rules of the covenant. That's why people argue over whether or not Job brought this stuff on himself through his fear of what his sons might be doing and making sacrifice and so forth. I've heard it preached both ways. And I don't think you can come up with a legitimate answer on that because, again, we don't know when Job took place. But, of course, that's not the point of the preaching of Job that was shared with me. It was all about not being mad at God no matter what he does. If he kills your kids, don't be mad at God. If he steals your stuff, destroys your stuff, don't be mad at God. That's not the, the, the theme. That's not the point of the book of Job, folks. So I guess my question on that would be, 
Why in the world is somebody teaching on the book of Job when there's so many other things you could teach people and be a blessing? Again, it goes back to what I asked before. If we're not teaching on the tongue, what are we teaching? What is the modern day church teaching? If not the importance of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. God intends you to, for you, apparently, from Romans chapter 5 and many other places we could go to confirm this. God expects you and me to reign on this earth. Well, that certainly fits with Genesis 126, what God's original intention for man was. Let man have dominion on the earth. That hadn't changed. God never changes. So God's original purpose didn't change. His original purpose is his present day purpose. And the Bible identifies that as because of what God has done for us through the finished work of Jesus and because of the righteousness of God that we have been made by making Jesus the Lord of our lives. God expects you to reign. How are we going to reign? Well, remember we read over in James chapter 3, if you can control your tongue, you control your whole body. If you can learn to speak only what God's word says, you can control your whole body. Remember Romans chapter 8 verse 1 or verse 2, verse 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now folks, if we put those things together, and if they're true, thank God they are. But if they are true, that means if you've been delivered from the law of sin and death, that means from your tongue, you can prevent and or remove anything in your life that the devil brings against you. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What work of the devil would not be included in the law of sin and death? What work of the devil would not be included then in the dominion or the authority that we have been given because we were made righteous and Jesus was risen from the dead? What could not we overcome? If the Bible is true. You do see the point, don't you? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. How do these things fit together? You choose life through your words. You prevent the devil's attack through your words. You overcome him when he does attack through your words. Remember when Jesus was tempted of the devil after fasting for 40 days, his answer was always the same. It is written. His words prevented the, the devil, the enemy of God, from gaining any place in his life. His words. And only his words. Now if Jesus, the Son of God here on the earth, he's laid aside his heavenly power and glory and come to the earth as a man, but at the time that the temptation takes place, He's been anointed with the Holy Ghost. John's already baptized him in the Jordan River. The Holy Ghost descended on him in bodily shape as a dove, the Bible says. He has the spirit without measure. And Jesus' defense, or means of overcoming the devil's temptation, was to speak the word. To put God's words in his mouth. And so, in so doing, by so doing, he chose life instead of death. Well, then should we expect it to work some other way for us? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has already made you free from the law of sin and death. It may not look like it in your life or in mine. But the reality is we've already been set free. We've already been set free. Jesus spoke the same things in John chapter 8, about verse 32, 33. He said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. If you continue in my word. Continuing in his word means renewing your mind to God's ways and God's promises 
and whatever the Bible says about your situation, which means confessing the word, the fourth type of confession, the confession of the believer, of who we are in Christ and what belongs to us because of what he did for us. And that brings us to knowing the truth. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth. After you continue in the word, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So what's he saying? He's saying death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. There was a lady that um, um, was the sister of somebody that was uh, well acquainted with and uh, had a close personal relationship with the Hagans. And uh, this sister really had not been brought up, had not been exposed much to the things of God and the things that we know of, the simple things that we know of to be true. And so she came uh, after a service at some seminar we were having there in Tulsa. And uh, her sister brought her into the speaker's room where Brother Hagen was after the service was over. And so she asked if she could talk to Brother Hagen for a few minutes. And so her sister had arranged it with uh, Brother Hagen. And so they came back. I brought him back to where he was. And um, she started telling Brother Hagen a little bit about some of the stuff she was going through. And um, she made some comments about how different their attitude toward God and the word was from the church that she was part of and so forth. And so Brother Hagen just simply said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to get, and he already had one. It was a little mini book in him. He said, I want you to take just five scriptures that are mentioned here. And there's hundreds listed in the book of who we are and what belongs to us in Christ. But he said, I want you to read through them and pick five that mean something to you. And he said, I want you to just begin to confess what the word says, those five scriptures for 30 days. Well, it was a little bit more than 30 days when she got back around. She lived in another part of the country. So it was a little bit more than a month later as she was out seeing her family and her sister brought her to a service, just the same thing, just the same way as it had happened about six weeks maybe before. She came in the back and she said this to Brother Hagin. She said, I'm amazed, just absolutely amazed at the changes that occurred in me. She said, I started speaking those four scriptures, or five scriptures, whatever it was he said. I started saying those five scriptures over my, myself. And after about a week doing it, she said, it was like I was born again again. She said, I know that's not a good way to describe it. I know you can't be born again again. But she said, there's such a difference in me. There's such a difference in the confidence that I have toward God now than I had before. She talked about some of the other results, some of the other um, changes that had occurred in her life. Some of the, the biggest change was stuff that uh, her family was pointing out. Mom, you're different than you used to be. What's going on type stuff. She said, I'm just a different person. After confessing those five scriptures over myself and my life and my situation, my family, for just these 30 or 40 days, however long it had been. I never will forget the look on that woman's face. Brother Hagin said this. He said, by confessing those scriptures, you've just now started taking hold of what belonged to you all the time. It was her confession that made it real. Folks, that's the way God made us. To try to get some kind of godly results or divine results some other way will not work. This is the way he made us. He made us to be governed by our words. He made us to be ruled by our words. He made words to be the means whereby we can exercise the authority that we've been given. Our righteousness is released to make good on God's promises in our life through our words. Look at how much Jesus talked about words. Notice all the times that the Bible talks about by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. Notice the times Jesus talked about the, uh, the exercise of faith through the speaking of words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Over and over and over again, every gospel writer captures it. 
it was a significant enough part of Jesus' ministry for the, the, the different gospel writers to identify it and to be reminded by the Holy Ghost to give us a record of what happened. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And always will be. If we, can, if we can learn to control our tongue, we can stop anything and everything the devil brings. If we can learn to control our tongue, we can have the same results, the same success that Jesus had when he spoke the word to the enemy when he was being tempted by him. We can break the power of Satan's attacks against our bodies and against our lives because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. We're already free. It's just the exercise of our authority to take possession of that freedom. And that's where our words come in. There is nothing the devil can or ever will do against you that you cannot overcome or that you will not overcome by the speaking of God's word. There's nothing more powerful in the universe. That's why God created the universe with words. Words are more powerful than the universe that was created. God's word is more powerful than the physical reality of what the devil is doing in our lives. And it's the only thing that is. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Choose life. Speak God's word and choose life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for showing us the simplicity of the word of God. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious and holy name that the words we speak carry power. We therefore declare in the name of Jesus that we are healed from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. We declare that the favor of God brings us into wealth and riches. We declare, Father, that the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, which is the speaking of your word into our lives and into our circumstances, cannot and can never be overcome by the enemy. We thank you, Father, that we have authority over anything and everything that the enemy can or attempts to do in Jesus' name. We declare that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. We are free now because we continue in your word, because we put your word in our mouths. We thank you, Father, that it brings us to the truth and the freedom that the knowledge of the truth brings. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, folks. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.